Well, good morning. Let's pray. Let's pray. So, Father, we come today, and um, as we gather in, in between these walls, our prayer is that we would hear your voice ab- above all the noise in our life, God, above all the, both the joys and the laments that we bring in, and that you would speak really loudly to us, that you'd show us Jesus, and that we would be changed. So, Lord, our, our ask is that you would work in, in our time. We know that you're here. And we want to be here too. So quiet our souls, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Israelite people were a people committed to memory. They were committed to remembering the the journey that they'd walked as as a nation and as a people. And they had wired into the rhythm of their year certain mile markers that they'd cross. And they were reminders for them to to not forget the story. One of those mile markers is called the Feast of Booths. And it would happen uh, around uh, the fall, late fall in every year. And here's where the command came out of. It was in Leviticus chapter 23. It says this, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations, that the, that the people who are coming after may know that I, God, made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. And so every year, uh, an Israelite family would build a, a booth. It, it was a temporary structure one that they would take and they would decorate with some of the fruits of Palestine. And, and they would make these booths, or they would call them tabernacles, or if it was in Hebrew, um, Sakat, that would be the name of this festival, the name of this celebration. And, and they would take them into the wilderness and they would camp for a week. And they would remember, remember when We were enslaved in Egypt, and God miraculously brought us out. Remember when he he parted the Red Sea. Remember when we walked through on dry ground. Remember when he preserved us for 40 years in the wilderness. Remember. Can you imagine being a little kid with your family, your parents, and your grandparents, and, and building a booth, and going, and putting it in the wilderness, and, and sitting around the fire, and recounting the stories, and telling of the, of the faithfulness of, of God. Uh, my family, when I was growing up, we did, we did a few camping trips, not too many, but I can remember each of them. I can remember sitting around a fire outside of Lake Tahoe and my dad with his guitar teaching us the song, It Only Takes a Spark to Get a Fire Going. <laughs> I was wondering at the time why it was taking us so long to get that fire going, but that's a whole other story, right? But I can remember it. You have to think of yourself as back in their shoes, that they were so committed. These are going to be things that we pass down from generation to generation. These are going to be stories that we tell. 
We refuse, the nation of Israel said, we refuse to forget the faithfulness of God. Because there's going to be times where it could happen. There's going to be times when his provision in the desert seems like it's a really, really long way off. There's going to be times when it feels like we're running out of water in the parched land. And it's going to be these stories that preserve us. So it should come as no surprise that when the Apostle John starts to write to the churches in the region of what's now modern-day Turkey, in this letter that we have is known as 1 John, that, that this pastor, this friend of Jesus, this person who's been really brought up and steeped in Judaism, would say this in chapter 2, verse 24 to the churches. And if you have a Bible, you can open it. 1 John chapter 2. Here's what Pastor John writes to these churches. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. Um, some translations will say, let the story that you heard abide in you. Let the story remain in you, because if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Notice this great emphasis John is placing on abiding and how important it is. He's saying, listen, if what you heard, if the story that you heard, and that's the way that some translations will, will translate this, they'll say, let the story you've heard from the beginning abide in you. And if and when it does, you too will abide in the Father and the Son. See, here's what John wants you to, to get. He wants you to understand that that the stories that we tell ourselves have significant power. And this story, uniquely, this gospel story, this grace story, this Jesus story, has an unbelievable power to connect you to the God of the universe. So he says, abide in it. Um, you could literally translate that word, um, remain. Remain in the story. Or you can translate it, stand in the story. Or you could translate it like Eugene Peterson does in his paraphrase version of the scriptures called the message, make your home in the story. Listen to the way he says it in John chapter 15. If you make yourselves at home, Jesus speaking, with me, and my words are at home in you, you can be sure that whatever you ask will be listened to and acted upon. You know what's interesting is that John puts great emphasis on abiding, and he paints the picture like this is a decision. You and I have to make the decision. Where are we going to make our home? And I don't know about you, but as I think back on this last week, there's a number of places I've made my home. I've made my home in anxiety. Anybody with me? No? Halos are on a little tight this morning. Okay, I get it. I get it. That extra hour of sleep is messing with you. Yeah, yeah. I've made my home in anxiety. I've made my home in fear a few times. Um, some of us, we've made our home in, in perfectionism. If I, if I get it right all the time, then I will be okay. Some of us, we've made our home in, in shame. And we've made our home in guilt. See, here's the, here's the reality. 
You will abide in something. All of us do. The question John wants to ask is, will you abide in this story? What you've heard from the beginning, will you let that sink in? Will you let that take root? Will you let that shape the life that you live? And it's possible to hear the story, but not make your home in it. It's possible to hear the story, but not abide in it. And see, this is what we would call in sort of the, the landscape of the church in general. It's, the, it's conversion to Jesus without formation to become like him. That's what it means to hear the story, but not let it abide in us. Here, here, will you look up at me for just a moment? We want more for you than to just hear the story. We want it to make a home in you. We, we want it to find a a place where it rests in your soul. And so at South, here's how we envision spiritual formation happening. Okay? Here, here's what it looks like. There's really three prongs that you and I have to push into to, to let the story abide in us. Um, the, the first, and these are in no order specifically, but the first is practice. It's that we take seriously the invitation from Jesus to follow him. It's not just hearing the words of Jesus. It's actually living in the way of Jesus. It's becoming generous people. It's becoming people who forgive our enemies, who love those who hate us, who, as we heard last week, who bandage the wounds of our enemies who would want to destroy us. It's people who are grounded in Scripture in a way that it starts to change them, who practice prayer and silence. Uh, the second thing is, is teaching, that we gather around the scriptures. We say, Jesus, we want to know how to live in your way, and the main way we do that is by diving into the scriptures and asking, Lord, how have you shaped and formed Jesus' people for centuries? We, we want to find that out here. We take that really, really seriously. And most models of spiritual formation typically stop there. They say, all right, practice and teaching. But what we want to say is, as we read the scriptures, we see community and fellowship together being really, really important for our formation. So in gathering together on a Sunday and being involved in a life group, what we're saying is we want this story to abide in us, and we believe that that happens best together. Not as unified, sort of, or, or singular, solo, isolated people spinning out there worshiping Jesus. No, no, love is practiced in community. Fellowship is practiced in community. I love the way that Eugene Peterson said it. He said this. He said, Christians don't simply learn or study or use Scripture. We assimilate it. We take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love, cold cups of water, missions into all the world, healing and evangelism and justice in Jesus' name, hands raised in adoration to the Father, feet washed in company with the Son. When John says, abide in this story, here's his invitation. Remain. Remain in the story of grace. Remain in the story of love. Remain in the story of Jesus. Retell it to yourself in the same way that the Israelites got into booths, went into the wilderness, and camped every single year to remember our God provided for us in the desert. Remain in that story, he says. 
because the story leads us to relationship with divinity and life eternally. Did you notice that that's what John said? That if you remain, you become connected to God in a way that allows you to find your home in him. What a great promise. What, a, what an unbelievable promise. It's interesting because uh, the Apostle Paul will pick up this idea that, man, what you think about matters. What we think about matters. The place that we set our mind matters. Listen to the way he says it in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So maybe his question after to his churches would have been, so where's your mind set? Where's it fixed? What are you abiding in? Maybe the best example we have of abiding in our culture today is our phones. We, many of us, myself included, we abide in our phones. It's the last thing we say goodnight to at night. Good night, sweetheart. I'll see you in the morning. Oh, yeah, Kelly, good night to you also, right? Um, I'm just kidding. And it's the first thing we say hello to in the morning. And when it runs out of batteries, we become practically frantic, don't we? This is just me. No, this is what it looks like to to retell the story over and over and over. And John says there's such a great promise attached with this. As the gospel dwells in you, then you dwell in God. And he echoes it in John chapter 14. This is eternal life. The promise that he made to us is eternal life as we abide. And he says, this is what I mean. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And when John says, listen, abiding in the story leads to abiding in God, which leads to eternal life, sometimes we have a vision of that eternal life that we don't get all that excited about. Um, I would term it, we, we envision it the kale kind of life, Okay. It's the kind of life that'll help us live forever but want to die immediately. <laughs> that's, what, that's what kale is, right? I mean, it'll help you live forever, but it'll make you want to die immediately, okay? You just eat enough. And I think a lot of us, we envision the eternal life Jesus offers in the same type of manner. It's like, well, I know I'm going to live forever and it's going to be in some ethereal existence playing the harp on a cloud and everything I did enjoy at one point in time is going to be in the rear view mirror, but I guess I get this forever so I should be excited about it. And it's not the way that John envisions eternal life at all, nor the way that Jesus paints the picture. Eternal life in the scriptures is the kind of life that lasts forever and the kind of life that you'd want to last forever. It's eternal in both duration and quality, and it doesn't start when you die. It starts right now. It's this kind of life that Jesus invited his followers to. It's this story that he says, let it sink in. Let it remain. Let it abide. Make your home in that story. 
Just like the Israelites would gather in the desert after they had taken their fall harvest and gathered fruits and gathered vegetables and remembered God's provision for them, they went on this camping trip and told of his faithfulness in generations before and generations before that and generations before that. Because the story matters. Because where we put our mind matters. Because memory, in many ways, shapes our relationship with God. And so John pleads with his churches, remain. Remain in that story. Remember that story. Don't get dragged away from it. There's power in staying with it. And he then he goes on to unpack what starts to happen as we remain. And so if you have your Bible, turn back just a little bit to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, because that's where he really starts this thought. And here's what he says. He says this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides or remains or makes their home forever. It's an interesting verse. I can remember hearing passages like this growing up, going to church as a high school student and going, ah, yes, I remember. God doesn't want me to have any fun. (laughs) I needed that weekly reminder. And some of us, we hear this, do not love the world. And we, what we hear in our head is, man, God is the great killjoy. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Let me first tell you what John's not saying, and then I'll tell you what he is saying. What John's not saying is that you should try your best to avoid enjoying the things that you find in this world. So when you go up and stand on a mountain peak and watch the sunrise, you should probably begrudgingly think to yourself, I could have done better. Or when you sit in front of a a beautiful and intentionally made meal, and get ready to cut into it and put it in your mouth, you should try your best not to enjoy it, even though it's screaming at you that it's to be enjoyed, and your senses and your taste buds are going, this is awesome! Followers of Jesus, we try not to enjoy that. Or or maybe it's our sexuality, that, that the intimacy we enjoy between husband and wife, we should try our best really not to enjoy that because we're supposed to not love the world. And people have taken this and they've run with it into some really crazy places. And I just want to tell you, that's not what John means at all. Because we can go to other passages in the scripture that talk about God giving us everything for our enjoyment. And you only have to read two chapters into the scriptures to know that God is into delight. In fact, he names the place he plants them, the Garden of Eden, which means delight. Here's what John's saying. He actually tells you what he says, what, what he means right in these verses. Look at verse 16. He says, for all that's in the world, and he goes, you want to know what I mean by that? Let me tell you what I mean by that. The desires of the flesh. This is the, the, the sexual lust, sexual urges that we have, that we want to use people to meet outside of the covenantal bond of marriage. So what John's saying is, listen, don't use people, love people. That's the way of Jesus. 
Don't try to just feed your own desires. Actually think about other people. He goes on. The desires of the eyes. This is, this is greed. This is the lie that we often believe. If I had better, newer, brighter, shinier, or more, then I would be happy. And he goes, oh, no, no, that, that's a worldly system of thinking. That's the world's way. That's not kingdom way. See, Kingdom Way recognizes that we're eternal people and that no amount of stuff will ever be able to satisfy us. So he goes, you've got to think about which system you're operating into and which view you're putting your hope in and building your life on. And he finally says, and and the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. It's the idea that we can stand next to somebody and believe that we're better than them for fill in the blank, whatever reason you want to measure by. And John says that's the world's way of operating, but as those who follow the way of Jesus and as those who find their home in his story, in his grace, in his love, and his mercy, we don't live in that way. We live in the kingdom way. But John's point is these are things that are affection and the love driven. And here's what he's saying. The story that we believe And the story that we tell ourselves shapes our affections. So let me me, me just try to press into your life a little bit if you'll invite me. There is a war going on for your loves. There's a war going on for your affections. Some of our forefathers, the Puritans, they would write about what it means to be formed spiritually. They wrote a lot about our affections. One of the, those people was John Owen, and he wrote a lot on feeding our affection for Jesus and a lot on trying to starve our affection for other things. But here's what he said. He said, fill your affection with the cross of Christ that there may be no more room for sin. So the problem when we choose the love of the world is that the love of the Father just hasn't sat in us long enough to satisfy us. And so we push back towards God because all, will you look at me for a moment here? All spiritual formation is affection formation. It's allowing the loves that God has designed us to push into actually to control us and to lead us. Let me give you just three truths right out of this passage of Scripture that I think may have the ability to sit on us in a way that will help us actually live into this. Here's the first truth. You're in complete and total control of your affections. Total control. Uh, John, Pastor John says, do not love the world, but love the Father. He tells us that because we have control over this. In fact, John, 44 times in his letter of 1 John alone, talks about love. This is the only time he talks about it in a negative or love not these things type of way. And he's going, listen, you have complete and total control over this. Here's the second thing he says. There's no such thing as divided affections. He says, you, you, either, you either love the world or, and the things in it, or... You love the Father. That, that's, the, that's your two options. And he really pushes hard. And so does Jesus. And so does James in his letter. And here's how he says it. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. How many are glad you came today? Here's his point. His point, you guys, is this is really serious. And what he's not saying is completely detach and completely pull back out of the world. But there are certain cultural liturgies that shape our loves. Um, uh, James K.A. Smith wrote a great book called um, You Are What You Love. And in it, he talks about the cultural liturgies that shape our hearts. And he says, listen, going to a mall is a cultural liturgy. It, it shapes us. And, and he says, you don't need to stop going to the mall, but just know when you go, there's certain things that are coming at you that are telling you a story. Going to um, a football game shapes us. I'm not saying you shouldn't go, and I'm not saying you shouldn't watch it on DVR when you get home. I fully plan on doing that. I've got my Bronco socks on today. If it were socially acceptable, I'd be wearing the Bronco shirt. I'm in that with you, but just know that as we start to root and as we start to cheer, something happens in our hearts. As we update our Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat or whatever you do, something, it's, a, it's a cultural liturgy. It's shaping us. And and here's the thing, when we gather on a Sunday morning, we do not just gather to sing songs together. We do not just gather to hear scripture together. We gather to say, God, form our loves more and more around who you are, around what you've done. Let us get in this story. Because we've had a lot of other influences throughout the week, and there's a lot of things tugging at our heart. But we want to remember most of all that you are love and you are light and that in you is mercy and in you is grace. And we want to remember above all, this is the story that we're found in as followers of Jesus. And we gather to have our affections shaped and pointed back to him. John pleads with his church. And then he goes on. Verse 18. Here's what he says. He says, children, notice this, it's very pastoral in tone. Children, it's the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour, this time period in between when Jesus um, ascends to the Father and when Jesus comes back. They went out from us. But they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Anybody confused? <laughs> it's really interesting. John uses this word that has um, no small amount of baggage attached to it. He uses this word antichrist. And literally in the Greek, it's antichristos. Will you say that with me? Right. It simply means one who is against or opposed to Messiah, to, to the anointed one, to the Christ, to Jesus. Now, if you go on the internet and you Google Antichrist and image, after you get through all the pictures of Donald Trump and Barack Obama and Oprah, here's what you'll find something like this, right? And that's typically the picture of what we have in in our heads. Something sort of demonic, something completely evil, um, sort of devilish with horns and a tail and a pitchfork, 
What's really interesting, though, is that John tells us what he means by antichrist. Here's what he says in verse 22. Who is the liar? But he who denies Jesus is the Christ. This is the antichrist, whoever denies the Father and the Son. He's going, listen, don't think like devil with pitchfork. Think person who lives contrary to the way of Jesus. And what's fascinating, if you read through the New Testament, here's what you find. You find the Apostle Paul pleading with churches. You find John pleading with churches. Continue with what you've heard. Because people would come in after them and go, Jesus is a nice addition to your life. He's a nice hood ornament on your car. But you really shouldn't base your entire life on one man's love and one man's sacrifice and one man's resurrection. And so Paul will write, even just to the church at Galatia, listen to what he says. He says, I'm astonished that you've so quickly deserted the gospel. In chapter 3, he says, who's bewitched you? Who came in after me and bewitched you? In chapter 5, he says, you were running so well. Who cut in on you? And here's his question, and here's John's question each and every time. It's really simple. What are you doing with Jesus? Where does Jesus fit? Does he have your affection? Does he have your devotion? And see, the story that we abide in is of the utmost importance because opposition, friends, is a reality. And we often gloss over that. Well, let's just, let's just, John's making a really distinct point. There's some who are part of this faith, and then there's some who aren't. Now, here's what he says. The story we believe, the story of grace, the story of mercy, the story of Jesus, the Jesus story that we believe and that we abide in, it determines our allegiance. And you almost get the picture that Paul writes this with a sense of heaviness and a sense of lament. The same heaviness and the same lament that you've had when friends or relatives, family members have walked away from the faith. He, he's brokenhearted that there were people who were a part of their community and who have decided to walk away from this beautiful, abundant love that was found in Jesus so if you've, if you've walked through a journey like that, if you've seen people who you've prayed for and seen people who have, have become family and who you love dearly walk away from the way of Jesus, John goes, I, I get that. I, I get that. But, but he also would say, don't think that any of us are above it. He's, he's like, make your home in this story because it determines your allegiance. It determines where you find your home, where you find your sustenance because we live in a world of competing narratives. So here's my question that I typically ask myself. I ask myself two questions when I'm talking about what do I do with Jesus. Here, here's my two questions. I want to just sort of self-diagnose and go, all right, am I really living in this story. Here's the first question. Are there things in my life that are trying to displace Jesus as Lord? Are there other things in my life that determine my, that ask for my allegiance above my allegiance to him, above his kingdom, above his way? Here, here's the second question that I typically ask. 
is Jesus the end or a means to an end right now for me? Am I trusting in Jesus to get something other than Jesus? Am I trusting in Jesus because of what I hope or think he'll bring my way? If I am, it may seem like I'm living in this story, but when it comes down to it, I've really left. It's a different story altogether. So these are the questions that I, I try to ask myself. You know what the interesting thing is? That Jesus made this claim. It's not a popular one, but one that he made nonetheless. He said, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? Certainly he's the prince of peace. I would have said, yes! <laughs> he said, I, no, I tell you. But rather, what? Division. So here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, there are people who are part of this family of faith that are found in me, that abide in this story, and then there are people that are not. But here's the unique part about those who follow the way of Jesus, is that unlike other religions, other ideologies, and other paths, here's what people of Jesus believe, that those who are not part of the family are to be loved, are to be cherished, are to be valued, and are to be pursued. Like a shepherd who's lost a sheep, like a woman who loses a coin and sweeps her house, like a father who loses a son and runs to meet him along the road. This is the way of Jesus for the people of Jesus, for those who are outside right now of what we would call faith that John paints a picture of. Some have left, and it breaks his heart. But he says, all right, when you abide in this story, it not only shapes your affections, it determines your allegiance. And then he says this in verse 21. He says, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because there's no lie, of, and no lie is of the truth. Who's a liar but he who denies Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And he starts to write about this idea that he calls anointing. You are anointed. You know the truth. It's this Old Testament word. The background of it would be that people would anoint both prophets and kings as a way to signify and lead them into the calling that God had given them. It was a unique thing for a unique calling for a unique time. And then John starts to pick up this idea and he says, listen, you have been anointed. You don't need somebody to teach you. You've been anointed. Here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. It's the same thing that Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has, what? Say it with me, church. Anointed us. And who has also put his seal upon us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. See, in the Old Testament, anointing was for a special person for a special occasion. In the New Testament, is, anointing is so special that it's given to every single believer upon the profession of faith in Jesus. 
And Paul goes, listen, it's simply the Holy Spirit that is put into your heart as a seal. You are, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are anointed. You are one who's been, quote unquote, messiahed. The Holy Spirit lives in you. And it happens as we start to remember, oh yeah, I'm in this story of grace and I'm in this story of mercy and I'm in this story of love and this story shapes my affections and this story determines my allegiance and this story reminds me that his spirit lives in me and that I can hear his voice and that I can commune with him intimately. And he knows my name. Think about how significant that would have been for people both in John's day and think about how significant it should be for us today. If you're a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in you. So what John goes on to say is, hey, listen, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, the the quote-unquote antichrists, but the anointing you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but his anointing teaches you about everything, and it's true, and it's no lie, just as he taught you, abide in him. And if you're going, hey, well, if if we're anointed and we don't need a teacher, then what in the world are we doing here right now? Okay. You should also ask that question about the letter that John's writing, though, okay? because all he's doing is teaching, and it's what he's given his life to. So we see all throughout the New Testament that God gives some to be apostles, and some to be prophets, and some to be pastors, and some to be teachers, and some to be evangelists. He takes this idea of teaching the people of God really, really seriously. But here's the truth of the matter, friends. You don't need to hear my voice today. More than anything else, you need to hear God's voice. My voice can't change you. The Spirit of God is the voice that can change the human soul. And that's what John is pointing out. He's just simply echoing the promise of Jesus. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. As D.L. Moody so poignantly stated, the Bible without the Holy Spirit is a sundial by moonlight. Luckily for you, follower of Christ, you have the Spirit. And so, these followers of Yahweh, they would gather in the wilderness and they would retell the story. They would gather the bounty from that year and remember that just in the same way God preserved their nation in 40 years of wandering in desert, that he's still preserving them and he's still providing. And that they're in this story, not of self-sufficiency, but of God-dependency. And he comes through. And can you imagine being in a booth with your family, sitting around a campfire in the wilderness and seeing that temple in Jerusalem up on the hill? And at this time of the year, they would light 16 massive pillars of fire, and it would light up the entire area because of the darkness that surrounded it. 
So imagine being in that wilderness, looking off at that temple, being reminded that God is light. And then on the seventh day of that festival, the seventh day of camping in the wilderness, they would all journey into Jerusalem. And the priest would take two pitchers. One of them would be filled with wine as a reminder of God's goodness and the bounty he'd provided. The other would be empty, and the priest would ceremonially march down the streets to the pool of Siloam and would dip the pitcher in the pool of Siloam and pull it out full of water. And they would stand, the nation would sing Psalm 118, that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And they would march back into the temple. And the priest would take the wine and pour it out into a basin. And then he would take the water from the pool and pour it out into a basin. And it's on this day that Jesus stands up in the temple courts and makes a statement. says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Let him come to me and drink, because whoever believes in me, as the scriptures said, for his inmost being will flow streams of living water. And they went, oh, this whole time. We've been reminding ourselves of provision in the wilderness. This whole time, we've been pouring this water out, signifying this God who made water spring forth from a rock. This whole time, we've been telling that story. It's actually been pointing to his story. The one who would come, the one who would redeem, and the one who would save. And it's this story. We don't gather in booths anymore, but we gather around the table. And we gather around the table to retell. And we gather around the table to reenact. And we gather around the table to abide. Because we believe that when this story abides in us, we abide in him. And as we abide in him, it overflows to springs of life abundantly and life eternally. Friends, we're making our home somewhere. The question is where, and the invitation this morning to come to the table is to tell that old, old story again and to plant our lives in it. So tell me, tell me that old, old story. Tell me the story slowly that I might take it in. The wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. Tell me that story often, for I forget so soon. The early dew of morning has passed away at noon. So let's tell each other that story. As we come, let's remember that story. And let's not just hear it, but let's say we want to find our lives in it. That's the invitation of the table. It's open to anyone who's following the way of Jesus. If that's not you this morning, it's really simple. You can just put your faith in him and come and celebrate this God who says, oh, in me, 
There's springs of living water. Let's pray. So Jesus, this morning, we want to remember that story. The story of your grace and mercy and love. And we don't just want to hear it, but we want to abide in it. We want to make our home in it. We want it to shape us and define us and make us and mold us. So this morning, we say back to you, our hope is in you, our allegiance is to you, our affections are to you, and we believe that you live in us. Remind us of it as we come to this table. Help us to retell and remember and replant our lives in your love. It's in your name we pray.